The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center, sponsored by General Dynamics Information Technology. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of government contracting. Amtower Off Center with your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is part two of a discussion we started uh, last week. I'm here with Jason Miller of Federal News Radio, Bob Lofeld of Lofeld Consulting, and Nick Wakeman of Washington Technology. And we're doing kind of a recap of 2017. The latter part of this show, we'll take a look at uh, at the major uh, uh, semis coming down the uh, pike for, for 2018, but I want to start off with uh, the merger and acquisition uh, field from 2017. And, and the one, I mean, there were several big ones, but uh, the one that caught my attention was CSRA buying Praxis. And if you're, if you're not in central Maryland or if you don't do business in the IC, you probably aren't really that aware of Praxis. But when you drive down Route 32, one of the uh, main arteries going to Fort Meade in the morning, traffic comes to a dead halt, literally, somewhere between 6.30 and 7.30, and it goes real slow. And Praxis has one of the best advertising tools ever invented. And uh, we, we clean up the road sign, the road sign uh, maintenance. So you, you could be sitting next to that Praxis sign for 10 minutes every morning if you're an NSA employee. And they had... Uh, uh, according to my LinkedIn analysis, about 900 uh, warm bodies in uh, in the fort uh, prior to this merger, and CSRA had had fewer, I think, than a hundred. So there, CSRA has has uh, migrated in a big way into the IC, and and I'd be interested, Nick, in particular. Uh, are, are we seeing bigger deals? Are we seeing more tactical deals? Are we seeing both? What's driving the activity here? I think we are seeing bigger deals, but I think primarily we're seeing more tactical, strategic deals. I think I don't think people are necessarily buying just to get big. CSRA practices are a great example, very strategic. I mean, CSRA is already a large company, but this gets in deeper into a customer that's really important to them with their uh, you know, winning that recompete of the groundbreaker. They need to get deeper and deeper into NSA. Uh, and you see it across the board with other uh, you know, Mantech buying uh, Infozen, that was a good deal for them, adding more IT capabilities, healthcare, those kinds of things. So that's what that's what we're seeing. I mean, you still, you know, you're going to still see these mega deals, the DXC, uh, Vencore, uh, Keypoint deal. Uh, but that's as much about Veritas Capital, which owns Vencore and Keypoint, wanting to exit or, you know, uh, you know, liquidate, exit, liquidate yeah. for those things. Yeah. DXC wanted to jettison their government business again. They, I'd, I'd agree with you about the strategic buys. And when the market is declining, uh, markets contracting, companies will buy backlog. And and uh, in times when the market turns and and budgets become a little more flush, they'll they'll buy strategically yeah. to get position, to get the relationships in markets they want to be in. 
Jason? One of the biggest things that I see, and I don't cover this market as closely as both of you guys do, but when a vendor is, the, the growth from vendors seems to be happening through M&A, not organically, because of the government spending has been so flat. Right. I think, as Bob mentioned earlier in our in last week's conversation, that, that the government spending, especially defense, uh, homeland security type spending is going to go up, and that's more opportunities to grow organically. But... I, I'm always surprised and I'm always talking to our salespeople at Federal News Radio about this M&A market and, and be aware of what's going on. And, and, you know, Nick, you see it too, I'm sure. And Bob, you see it from a customer perspective is where you used to get money from Agility and Task. And now you're just getting money from Task or Agility, whoever they turned out to be. Uh, that That's a big issue. And then as you think about the flow down effect on DOD or civilian agencies, where the, the, the competition is reduced as well, which again, I'll go tag back to last, week, last week's conversation, Bob. That way they should let everybody in under these multiple board contracts. <laughs> that way when you have an M&A, you don't, all of a sudden your pool doesn't go from 20 to 10 to five because of M&A. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there, there's a, a, a weird aspect of this from my perspective. Uh, the new tax legislation that just went through, uh, uh, some of the analysis that I've seen shows that companies are gonna use the money that they're saving to buy back stock. Bob, do you anticipate that happening with a lot of the larger companies in our market, stock buybacks, and does that impact uh, their way? Or can they use some of that money for this strategic acquisition? So it certainly enriches the uh, war chest for some of the larger firms. I I saw some uh, move out uh, promptly and announce that they were going to give bonuses to their employees. And I, I personally always like the bonus idea because it's one time only. Here's here's the bonus next year. You don't get it, and and that's a, a quick way of saying let let's have a a, a nice uh, warm uh, uh, holiday season, but next year we'll go back and spend money elsewhere, and and we'll we'll wait and see. Shareholders are certainly a benefit from it, and the market stock market keeps increasing because of the profitability of these firms. Do do companies come to you to say? I want to grow in this area. Which companies do you think are, are good, or is that an area that you avoid? We we don't we don't practice in that uh, M and A advisory space. There's also, I think, some concern when it comes to M and A about in the DoD world. I think the defense industrial base they're really the DoD is really worried about the shrinkage that's happening, and the concern that you know, as you saw with helicopters, how many people make helicopters? How many people make airplanes now? You've seen that con- contraction there over over the last. 30, 40, 50 years. I think there there is concern that they're going to see the same thing in certain types of IT, certain types of professional services. And, and I think that is a major concern. I think that's also why you're seeing this move to bring in new companies like GSA's Fastlane program. Uh, I think you're seeing DOD developing OTAs, other transactional authority to reach those other companies who don't traditionally do business in the government because I think there is concern. I mean, there's other reasons too, but I think you have to add that the M&A activity and the concern about the the shrinkage of the of the competition is part of the reason why some of these other things are happening. Yeah, Nick, I, Nick hates the word shrinkage. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, I had to, this, you know, once you get below sort of that big tier of the Lockheeds, the Raytheons, the GDs, the Northrop's, and you're talking about there's no way. There's the universe is so big that you'd have a hundred years of a hundred deals a year before it erodes competition at that services level. I mean, just there's just so many companies, and I don't think anybody. But the the I think Jason's point is you know as far as making the the literal big iron stuff, not computers, ships, planes, weaponry, etc. 
there's fewer players. Oh, at that level, definitely. Now that I think, I think, and you saw that I think you with, you know, Lockheed's got the F thirty five. You know, um, Northrop I think is building the bomber. Boeing's got the tank. You know, they, you know, they say they had competitions, but I think they really kept an eye at you know keeping these capabilities at different companies at that level. But you get below there when you're talking IT or computers. I just don't see there being an erosion of the industrial base. Jason. See, but I, I see the opposite because there's such a big – I've heard more complaints, more concerns about this medium-sized business issue that they are seeing and making it harder to get in because of the lack of organic growth that where a Lockheed Martin <clears throat> with their ALPA, a Lidos or CSRA or GDIT would once say $100 million, but it's, it's not worth our time. Now they're saying $50 million is worth our time because growth is growth and a new business right. is new business. No, I agree so, with you there, so, but that that's not... But that's that is a, shrinking the competition because a company no, who's it's, only it's, a $28 million company may not say, I'm not bidding on that. It just increases the competition because you're in the middle tier, you've got to... It is harder, but it's not eroding you know, the industrial base. Bob? I, I, I just saw... <laughs> Neutral a, third party. Yeah, I just saw a study that said we lost 17,000 companies out of the government marketplace last year. Last they, year? Last year, CSIS yeah. and, 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 and uh, AIA did that? Uh-huh. That's the one I, yeah. I just uh, just read. So I, I was really surprised to... Uh, well, I guess not surprised, but but uh, disappointed to see that we've lost these good companies from our, our robust government market. You mean vacate or purchase? Uh, disappeared, decided not to play in the government space. Yeah. Just just too hard, not enough opportunities, not not winning. They'll, they'll go elsewhere. Well, let me let me ask a different question then, Bob. You, uh, when we were talking about doing this show, you brought up some of the uh, data that you've developed uh, recently over the decline of, of RFPs. Is this playing into that? I think this is a different problem with the, the RFPs because uh, as a business, we track uh, closely the release of RFPs. So that's the trigger mechanism for us to engage to do proposals. And we watch them predominantly in two categories, professional services and information technology. And in professional services, we uh, over the last five years, we've been clicking along with 1,000 RFPs a year that are that are out there for uh, companies to bid on, not, not task orders. Now I'm talking about major deals. And and that number keeps uh, increasing uh, each each year in professional services. In the IT market, <clears throat> it did just the opposite. We, we had been clicking along at about 800 RFPs a year. And the last two years, it's dropped by 40%. And, and uh, we're now seeing uh, releases around 400 to 450 uh, RFPs a year, where, where it had been uh, almost twice that before. So, so the hypothesis was that these vehicles are beginning to to sop up that market and take deals that would have otherwise gone out as uh, open opportunities to bid and they're not now starting to move through these contract vehicles so Alliant oasis are picking up and on, yes. the, on yeah. the product side cs cio cs and, and, and soup and are, we really see that as a, a a seismic shift in the uh composition of the federal marketplace and access to the federal marketplace. Okay, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I will be back with these gentlemen right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Mark Amtower. I am here with three of my friends, uh, prognosticators, reporters, and a uh, major player in the market, uh, Jason Miller, 
editor in chief of or executive ed- executive editor excuse me of uh, Federal News Radio Nick Wakeman executive editor of Washington Technology editor in chief editor in chief <laughs> no, don't you want to grow up to be an executive editor? no I don't want executive okay. in my title there you go okay editor in chief and Bob Lofeld uh, uh, editor in chief yeah no 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 <laughs> just just general chief. executive Lofeld and company CEO chairman emeritus all of those things wrapped into one um Jason, one of the issues you wanted to talk about was the uh, this Kaspersky uh, uh, deal where the government had, uh, what, 60 days to identify any Kaspersky stuff and then six minutes to jettison it? <laughs> Th- that was right. That came from a binding operational directive from September. And basically what it did was say to agencies, you're no longer allowed to use Kaspersky software or any services on your on government systems. And it also flowed down to contractors. And while that's interesting in and of itself, I think that's a, a new type of Cold War is what we're seeing here. But I think it definitely has huge impacts on the contractor community. And one of the things that I think contractors should be watching is what's the reverberation. So Symantec or... or or uh, any of the other trend micro does business in Russia and other countries, can they then be banned? Because the U.S. is setting some really bad, in my view, precedents in the sense that they're not being transparent. They're not saying what they found. There's not been one idea that there's big problems. They just says, trust us, there's problems. And in the sense, they haven't done a good job explaining why there are problems. And I think that's coming back to this idea of, of transparency that is lacking in a lot of what's going on in federal procurement. Hence the protest issues we talked about earlier that Bob talked about the GSA advantage. We could talk all day about the lack of transparency. Don't get me on my soapbox, Mark, but I think Kaspersky is a really, a, in some ways, a, a shot GSA across the advantage bow. Still out there? It's still out there. Oh, okay. It's in GSA schedules too. The lack of transparency there, but there's a shot across the bow here in many ways about for that Kaspersky. And in fact, in the NDA defense authorization bill, which we talked in great length about and in, in part one of this discussion last week, they actually has a provision that would ban Kaspersky in government. Now, Kaspersky has since uh, decided to take uh, DHS and, and to court to say this this basically de facto debarment is unfair. It, I didn't we didn't get our due process. We want due process. And so it's an interesting kind of back and forth. But again, the fact that the government can come in and make a decision without any due process, in, in at least the eyes of the vendor, that's a huge deal. It, you know, it, it, it struck me as, as extremely weird because Kaspersky, uh, prior to that, had quite a good reputation. Uh, I don't uh, follow what, you know, I would listen to NIST on this, but I've talked to a few people I know who are involved in that type of activity in central Maryland down the road from me at Fort Meade, and they knew of nothing untoward about the uh, Kaspersky uh, software. So I, I was a little little baffled by this as well. But uh, Robert, any, any thoughts? It, just on the face of it, it sounds like a prudent thing to do, to say, well, they're a Russian company, so don't put them deep into our uh, IT infrastructure. But, but whether that... Uh, Just put them into our political process. Or not. I, I don't really know. Yeah, I, I don't either. I think it's, I do think it's an issue, you know, globalization has happened. And I think that's, you know, I think maybe maybe we need to look at a better mechanism than these sort of proxy boards and separations and, and things like that. Because you have, you, know, you have Accenture, you have IBM, you got... All these companies have probably more people outside the U.S. than inside the U.S. So. Right. And, and just because it's a Russian-owned company, 
there are ways to to ensure that they're not sending data back to Russia. You could, in contracts, you see this all the time, any data must be stored in clouds that are in America, on American soil. You see that all the time in, in contracts, about all the time, but you do see that. And as Nick made the good point, a lot of these companies, these, these are global companies that do software development, that do professional yeah. services, wherever there's w people to do the work. So that's why I think it's it's part of that cold, it's a new cold war in terms of in the, on the economic side. Well, I, I was just surprised given the uh, current president's uh, 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 apparent uh, bromance with uh, with the Russian top dog, uh, Mr. Putin. Um, um, yeah, it, didn't, it just it, the whole thing baffled me. Um, so uh, we're going to leave that behind. Um, <laughs> I don't want to kick this dog; it might bite. Um, category management. Here's another dog I can kick. Uh, so we had an, an OMB uh, directive initially saying uh, uh, category management's alive and well. We use these 16 vehicles. Now it's what, Jason, 342 vehicles? Yeah. Um, Only 20, 26, 29, somewhere in there. Uh, and it's a draft memo. So if you remember uh, about uh, December of 2016, right before the Obama administration left, they were big fans of category management, and they put out a circular, a draft circular for comment. In the year since, we've heard nothing about the draft circular. They got some comments back, and that was that. So what I learned back in, in uh, uh, November timeframe was that they were circulating a draft memo now to really institutionalize category management. I think they've realized a circular probably was not going to go anywhere. There's too much pushback from agencies. Memos from OFPP get less pushback because always memos can be rescinded much easier than a circular can. And they're not using the term mandatory, but they are using the, the term uh, justify why you wouldn't use one of these best-in-class contracts. And and what's interesting is it seems like everything GSA touches is now best in class. Schedules are best in class. Yeah, HCATs right. are best in class. <laughs> Align is best in class. Oasis is best in class. I mean, they do do I, NASA I, soup and, and IH yeah. and CISP3, but can everything GSA touch be best in class? And this is not a criticism of GSA, but it is a little bit of a head scratcher that why is there so much, why is so much why best in class? Why is there so much patting yourself on the back here? Well, you um, said that. Yeah, I did. <laughs> And I'll say it again, uh, but uh, Robert, what's your uh, well, what's your take it's on it? It's OMB that determines the uh, best in class, but I think it does it with uh, great advocacy from GSA. the The uh, great thing about this, from GSA's point of view, is that this is the ultimate uh, sales slogan to say to government agencies, "We're best in class," and OMB is saying you should use our vehicles. So, so don't go out and do your own procurement. Send all your work over to Alliant and Oasis and and let, let the good times roll. So, so they're, they're churning hard at it. We saw uh, NIH is in there with their uh, NITAC uh, commodity services procurement, and we know that they are working hard now to put together their case to go to OMB to, to bring along the, uh, the other uh, NSA contract for uh, services and get that certified as best of class. The NSA contract or the, the uh, NIH contract? The NIH contract. Yeah, yeah so NIH, SB3 yeah. and SB3 small. Uh -huh. are, are, they're are, they're in in work now. Okay, well, I I, I think they're excellent vehicles, but I'm I'm biased there. 
Um, I, I think one of the things about the about best in class or category management more generally is it would be interesting to see what Emily Murphy does at GSA <clears throat> around it, how much she supports it. Because when she was on the Hill and she worked for the House Armed Services Committee and the Small Business Committee, she had some serious problems with, for instance, strategic sourcing and the impact it was having on small businesses. When she went to Hask, she had some challenges with, okay, what's the impact? What's the broader impact of category management? And what I think is happening is there's two pieces. There's demand management and then there's category management. I think generally speaking, there's a lot of people in government who support demand management. How do you manage your demand? When do you buy? Who do you buy it from? But the category management piece of, of designating these best-in-class contracts, that is, in some in some people's views, short-sighted because you're pushing us down a path that we don't want to go down, but why don't you just give us some criteria that we should try to fit under? Meaning, what is a best-in-class contract? Okay, does let me make the decision whether my contracts meet that or not. Um, and I think, Bob, you make a very valid point. There are too many multiple word contracts. There are too many of these one-offs. DHS Eagle or, or, or Justice Department ITSS or Treasury has ITIPS, or I know I'm mess, messing them up. <laughs> Seaport E, and then you have all these other ones. But at the same time, that goes back to our last conversation from last week. I'll keep hitting this nail on the head, Bob. Uh, let everybody in, and you won't have all these problems. So no, you- I don't think that's You still have the problem. I, <laughs> with category management, can you still do – do you have to have the best-of-class contracts? Can you just do – because the, the concept of category management, trying to understand what you're paying for things and how you're buying them, is a good idea, it seems to me, but – Maybe, maybe they're pushing it too far. I don't know. Well, look at the stakeholders in it. The, the idea is let's let's uh, take all of procurements in a particular category, all procurement actions, and force them through some uh, set of vehicles. The, the government likes it because they're moving procurement actions to GSA or NIH that, that want to do that. That's their business. And the, and the agencies really don't have the resources to do them yeah. themselves. So it lightens their workload in the agency. The, the second good thing is that the contractors who are recipients of this, the, the largest 200 companies in the market, they're loving it. They're, they're, uh, this is a field day for them. So they're certainly not going to complain. And it's the disenfranchised 10,000 other companies that are excluded by this consolidation. They're the ones who will complain, but nobody wants to listen to them. And this goes back to, Nick, the competition yeah. discussion we had just briefly earlier about how it's limiting it's, – the competition is shrinking because of this type of effort. I mean, we think about office supplies and OS3. They went from 500 companies that could offer office supplies to 15. Now, they may be getting better deals and more money, but you only have 15 companies, and then when Staples bought Office Max or whatever happened, you, you got 14. You right? got two companies making money there. Um, and, and that was from the outset of that particular aspect. So we're, we're going to take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to take a look at uh, 2018 rather than look back at 2017. You're listening to Tower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 AM. Back in a moment. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with Nick Wakeman, Washington Technology, Bob Lofeld, Lofeld Consulting, and Jason Miller of Federal News Radio. Uh, uh, gentlemen, we have a couple of uh, – I was at a Bloomberg briefing um, uh, not that long ago, a couple of months back, and they were talking about uh, these 20, 20 vehicles that were coming into play in, in uh, quote, the near term. 
Um, it was it was a really interesting list because there's potentially a lot of money in these. Bob's, you have uh, a couple of these on your uh, on your watch list, particularly Encore Three and uh, and the Next Gen for Seaport. So why why are these at the top of your list? Well, Encore Three is there because uh, I've been a longtime evangelist for the idea that the government should never buy technical services from the lowest price to offer uh, that they should should select companies based on the merit of their, their technical approach, their management approach, and, and uh, their, their experience. And yet Encore and DISA, against all advice from industry, went forward with a procurement strategy that said they're going to push out $17.5 billion in IT services to the lowest-priced, technically acceptable offers. And they, they went ahead with their award to uh, 20 companies uh, out of uh, 72 that tried to secure a place. And I'm personally interested to see how this procurement turns out. Will will the LPTA be uh, a disappointment as we had uh, predicted, or will it turn out to be okay? And they'll still push the 17 billion dollars to the lowest price players. It, it's a big question. Yeah, I, I, there were some companies that on Encore two that did not bid on three because it was LPTA. They just figured so, they so, couldn't. So this was the ethical discussion yeah. that we had with uh, clients about. Do you, do you really want to play in this space when you're not at all structured to do it? Yeah. Do you want to tell a story about how you can uh, be that low price player and then try to undo the story later right. on? And, and there's some very ethical companies in town that said, this is not us, we're not gonna play in that, and, and they walked away. Yeah. And, and others said, well, we're gonna, we're gonna be that company and we'll transform what we're doing, and, and they stepped up to play. So we'll see. Yeah, I don't think they'll get anywhere near that ceiling. Uh, that, just, that would be my guess, yeah, and, I just, and and they have another vehicle that's got a best value a strategy. Right, to I'm, it. Trying, I'm trying to think of the name of it. It's escaping me right now, but I think that's the one. Yeah, where a lot in, of this in the works. Yeah, Uncle Rourke, yeah. and, and that's the relief valve here to yeah. say, well, we went ahead, you know, full speed ahead yeah. against all advice, otherwise, and and uh, now we have a back door here to. Now, yeah. is, is the Encore a multi-agency vehicle, or is it a DISA? No, it's just, just DISA. Well, DISA has a lot of money, but uh, it's— And a it's, huge infrastructure that will be now maintained by the lowest-waged uh, uh, yeah. individuals well, my son we can find. Just, you know, he's had computers since he was like three. Just built his first one, so maybe I'll put him in as a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so— and it's a gaming computer. Well, I understand I, I they assume like his that salary is right for this. So it's, there you go. Yeah. Um, hell. Fifteen so, bucks an hour, so, big him. We're all happy. So the the other one you mentioned was Seaport E, the follow-on to it, Seaport Next Gen. We, uh, we're not quite sure what that's going to look like, but we know the earlier vehicle was uh, more of what we called an open enrollment vehicle that you could uh, get on board any time, and and no one ever got uh, turned down, or at least if they did, they they uh, didn't didn't make the news. But there, <laughs> there were thousands of companies that were successful bidders, <clears throat> and. And now uh, the Navy is starting to rethink what it wants to do ne- next cycle. We, we don't know how that will shape out, but we know it won't be the same as, as Seaport E, the first, first generation. Well, that will beg the question to me. You know, GSA schedules have traditionally been open, but if you take a look at the, the numbers for any schedule there, the top five companies generally take 50-plus percent of the total schedule dollars. Uh, and it's always been the top 2% taking at least 60 to 70% of the dollars. And as Jason mentioned, uh, uh, I guess in last week's show, you know, why doesn't GSA just jettison all of the uh, 
the zeros. Well, if you run a, a report from the schedule sales query tool, you'll see that, that fully 20% of the companies are still registering zero dollars. Mm -hmm. um, the government doesn't like to... Seaport yeah. E is pro probably the other other extreme that uh, there's there's multiple thousands of players. Yeah, on, but how many it. of them make you and, know chunk and multiple thousands who've never got a dollar out yeah, of it. Yeah, so yeah. so why administer a vehicle with thousands of players that that don't don't play? Don't, well, eight A Stars doesn't have an open enrollment, but it has quite a few players on yeah, board. Around, and around I'd, I'd be curious to know how many of those really don't make any money. Yeah, you know, I, I would disagree with that on the small business contracts, whether it's 8 stars or the Vets 2 or whatever. I, I don't have a problem with those people being the quote-unquote more deadwoody than I would have on GSA schedules. I have a problem with it. I'm just curious about, you know, are there five companies that take an inordinate amount of the dollars? Possibly. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised because yeah. I think, you know, the one thing, I, you know, we've, we've kind of been a little bit on GSA during our last two shows, the show and the last show, but I'll give them credit. The, the sales... Query tool is a great tool, as is their GWAC dashboard. I mean, yeah. I know it's a little off topic, but when people are looking for tools to understand what's happening in the federal market, those are two really good ones that work really well. Yes. Now, if we want to talk about Fed biz ops, Nick, don't get me started on that. No. I mean, I have these soapboxes piled in my office <laughs> that I get on sometimes. We're going to stay off of those. Really? I do. Can you believe yeah. it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no. I, I agree with you about the small business, but I think, you know, you look at, you know, at Lion or, or any any IDIQ um, they should they should get rid of those, especially if you competed full and open and you haven't done any business, you should go. Yeah, I, I, I want to clarify one thing though. I mean, I, I said inordinate amount of dollars for some companies. It's not inordinate. People make a mistake here, and Jason, I think maybe you make the same mistake. You can argue Jason with me. Jason does not make mistakes. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm uh, make a mistake no. every day. I, I made a mistake once. I just can't remember what it was. Um, but. There are certain companies that make a lot of money from the GSA schedules. Certainly, uh, you can call that an inordinate amount. But this is not a level playing field market. This is a level playing field for the companies that bother to understand it and to queue up the things necessary to win. That means that they're putting at disadvantage certain other companies. So it ain't a level playing field. It shouldn't be a level playing field. It should be a playing field where the intelligent Companies with good products and services win. I don't think anyone would disagree yeah, I mean, with that. But I, and I, I see the schedules as sort of where companies come to learn about the market. I see the schedules as you register at SAM and you get a phone call from some scam <laughs> operation in Tampa, St. <laughs> Pete, saying, you need a schedule. We can get you one. It'll only cost you $10,000, maybe twenty. Um, and there's no small print here. But I think on these on these contracts like Alliant, if you're not, you know, hitting a certain threshold, I mean, what, by the, to get on those, you have to be experienced. So you should be able to win more business. And if you're not, then there should be an exit ramp as much as an on ramp. I well, I think that if the schedules are easier to get on, then I would agree with you, Nick, that it's it's a place to learn. But because they do cost, even at reputable companies, ten and twenty thousand dollars or more to get on the schedule. And you can't see what's on the schedules. You see, you're putting me on the soapbox, Nick. I told yeah. you not to. You, you, how can you make a positive decision, so, and you, which, which basically you can't, whether or not to bid. So you spend the money, you get on, and then if you realize this isn't for me, it was a total waste of money because you can't make that decision until you get on. Right. It's ridiculous, the lack of transparency. I, I, I have some criteria for, for companies that I advise on, you know, go, no-go on schedule. 
And what's and, your criteria? No, I'm not getting in there because that's paid advice. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I agree with you. But I, I get so, you know, for me, thank goodness there's bid protests because there's so many contract awards that you're not going to learn about until somebody mm-hmm. protests yeah. and then try to find out, you know, fed biz op. I use it all the time, of course, but gosh, I mean, I just, there's just not enough transparency. And agencies aren't posting publicly their awards as they're supposed to. I mean, DOD, I think does a good job. Civilian agencies are all over the place. Mm-hmm. So on, on the schedules, we, we get companies that uh, come to us and, and uh, ask how they can get in the market and uh, and some of them are, are very substantial companies that just don't play in the garment space. And we tell them always the first step is you got to go get a GSA schedule because nobody wants to talk to you unless you have a way of closing a deal. Right. And so so well, that's we, that's your open enrollment. That's I, that's where you start. I've also seen a number of the uh, major primes tell small companies that we're not going to talk to you unless you have a GSA schedule mm-hmm. that shows some level of seriousness. I've often believed that that is a delaying tactic for the large company just saying, you know, I really don't want to talk to you anyway, but here's my latest excuse. So We could, uh, could do a whole show on that topic. Uh, we, we could do a whole show on a lot of things, and I'm bringing you back from one already. So <laughs> <laughs> you're listening to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. We will wrap up this discussion uh, right after these messages. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com, 1500 AM. I'm wrapping up a two-week discussion with uh, Jason Miller, Bob Lofeld, and Nick Wakeman. So I'll thank you guys in advance for this. Uh, but we haven't touched on uh, the, the, the technology trends. And, and Nick, you brought this one up, so I'm going to let you lead off here. Uh, what are the hot trends coming down the pike, and, and uh, where are they going to fit in the mix? Well, you know, I think we're sort of, this last year, two years, we're really starting to see a transition. I mean, cloud and mobile have been big, hot topics for a long time. But I think we're starting to see signs of how these things are really going to enable, you know, changes in government. And it's more than just the technology. I think it's getting into agencies looking at how they can change their processes, how they can get, you know, uh, you know, get better at what they do. And then Coming in with that, you have things like, you know, big data analytics and artificial intelligence, machine learning. I mean, I think all those uh, all those things are really starting to to build some momentum. And if we get the, the budget figured out, we'll actually see some action there. Nick is so optimistic. I love spending time with Nick Wakeman. <laughs> if we get the budget figured out. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe maybe it's just uh his just his his optimistic view he of life. He didn't say when. He said <laughs> it. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I think I think you know, just to, to pile on a little bit, I think Nick is, is exactly right. I think uh the number of, of agencies that are moving to cloud, I wrote about this. Uh, maybe a month and a half ago, two months ago, the number of RFIs that came out in the early part of 2018, October timeframe, looking for cloud RFIs. And then when I talked to some vendors, they're seeing a definite uptick of moving away just from this email and collaboration and what they've commonly termed as low-hanging fruit to really mission areas and moving cloud. I think there's a more comfortability with cloud. People say, we trust the security of it and FedRAMP going to high baseline for FISMA and then as well as DOD level five, level four, whatever they call it on their end. I think there's this whole big change that has happened over the last two or three years. The second piece I'll add to it is the the cloud as the enabler, which we hear a lot of, right. but but artificial intelligence, machine learning, 
there's a huge interest in those areas in the government as well. And I think that's really going to propel the use of cloud because you can't buy enough servers. You can't do everything in-house to do these high computational capabilities in-house and you need to use somebody else's. It's cheaper, it's better, it's faster. So I, I agree with Nick, those two things, cloud mobile are big. The, the third piece I'll throw in there, and we have to talk about it, is cybersecurity. There's not going to be any let up. There's only going to be more. And I think as this continuous diagnostics and mitigation program continues to morph and change and get implemented, they're using Alliant, Alliant 2 eventually, they're using GSA schedules. I think you're going to see more pressure on agencies to not just better tools, but to do better with cybersecurity in different ways, whether it's identity management, identity proofing, or, or some of the other pieces and parts that come with cybersecurity, a backend attribute exchange, understanding roles and responsibilities, insider threat, and you can go on and on and on. And I think a lot of that is pushing agencies more to the cloud because the cloud infrastructure is more secure than what they have in-house. And it's easier to set up quickly right. and take down and, and all those agility. And yeah. I, I think cheaper is is never is not the answer right. anymore, but the, agil, the agility and the quickness is right. the answer. Bob? Yeah. I, I'm uh, concerned about the comment that let's let's move it all to the cloud because that's secure. That that's one of these marketing slogans that just, uh, as a technologist, scare, scares me because what we're doing is moving from the government's own owned and operated infrastructure to somebody else's owned and operated infrastructure, and the problems don't go away. The problems are still there. The challenges are still there. They're just uh, hidden behind this marketing banner of uh, is cloud. So trust me. They're, they're tough problems inside, and the, cy- the cyber particularly difficult because uh, when, when you build a cyber secure infrastructure, the challenge is how, how do you test it? How, how do you know it's secure? And, and you can run some tests, but it's the test that you didn't run that will get you every time. So how, how do you know really that it's secure? How, how can you test it and continue to test it? To, to raise that standard of uh, security across your infrastructure. These, these are tough, uh, tough uh, problems. Bob, you bring up a, a point that I think is commonly made among federal CIOs sometimes that, that I hear. And then the response is, well, how well has the government done in securing their infrastructure? And it's, it's you know, is it insanity to, to continue to do the same thing over and over again and expect different results? I mean, the government has failed time and again. And, and when I say failed, I, sh- I guess I should I should return that to say they've had big bouts of unsuccess and they've had big bouts of success <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, where they have not done a good job of securing their infrastructure. And if if Amazon or IBM or Microsoft or Google or whomever that's their business. I think that that's where the government's come around to to say they can do it better because it's it's incumbent on them to make money. If they fail at cybersecurity, they're going out of business. I, I don't know, yeah, Nick, no, where I, you go in no, the middle of us. I, no, I, I agree with you, Jason. I also think that that you're seeing a shift in how you, people think about cybersecurity more to accepting there is risk. We are going to have failures. We're all going to have breaches. So what you know? What are we comfortable with? What you know? It's not the same one size fits all for all your data, all your systems. And uh, I, I agree with you, Bob, though, also, I mean, moving everything to the cloud. What, what we're seeing is is these hybrid, uh, multi-cloud, multi, you know, some inside, some outside, some public, some private. Uh, yeah, I think hit, Nick hit it on the head hybrid. That's hybrid. Where, that's the future. Well, like five to seven years future. plus. Yeah. I'm just concerned about this uh, concept that it's an end state that you achieve. This is a secure infrastructure. Oh, therefore, I'm done. Right, it, and it, it's, there's it's, not the the journey goes on every day. It's a new threat and it's a new challenge. And, so it's it's never 
you, yeah, it's totally secure. And it comes back to how well the contracts are written, how, how well the solicitations are written. Are you putting in SLAs that say, we can send in a third party to audit your security controls. We, we want you know audit logs that come every hour, every half hour, whatever it is. And I think that's where the government still falls short is putting in the right service level agreements and understanding what the right ones are. Yeah. I, I love these hackathons where you commission the, uh, the white hat hackers to go Take on your infrastructure, and they find all kinds of stuff when they do it. Yeah, I to, was, to I was, what was allegedly a secure infrastructure. <laughs> I, I, I was at a discussion uh, at uh, a bunch of CEOs whose companies, mostly small, work at the fort, and one of them made a comment that the the idea of security is truly a false notion. Period. Yeah. yeah so would, regardless of the platform, it's, it's a moving target. But, but so, when you talk about tech trends, I'll throw one more out there just in this related cybersecurity conversation is risk management. Right. You, you cannot go to a conference. You cannot listen to a government people talk. You cannot listen to industry talk without risk management coming up. How do we manage the risk? How do we understand what the risks are? How do you explain the risk to the CEOs or the agency secretaries so they can make a decision? And then if you look at the cybersecurity executive order that the, the administration, that President Trump signed off last April, May timeframe, it says the agency secretary, deputy secretary, will be responsible for accepting risk. And that's a huge shift because before it was the system owner or it was the CIO or the CISO that was accepting risk. Now it's the agency itself, the secretary depsec that's accepting risk. And I think that will start to play out this year. And it'll be interesting to see when there is a breach, not if, but when there is a breach, <laughs> If that secretary, deputy secretary, one, is held accountable by the administration, and two, held accountable by Congress. I think that'll right. just expedite the revolving door, so when they know something's going to hit the fan, <laughs> they'll vacate. Um, uh, you're probably right. right? Um, uh, so we have a, a couple of minutes left here. So what I'd like as a wrap-up is uh, a, a top thought from you on what other factors may come into play here in the market. And Jason, I'm going to start with you in this one. I was all expecting you to start with Bob on that one. Yeah, no. <laughs> I think I think this year, things to look out for in the contracting community is uh, OTAs, Other Transactional Authority. I think there's going to be a lot of focus from Congress. I think they're going to get into this a little bit. I think the contracting community is very worried about DOG specifically, but other agencies more broadly, using these other transactional authorities and almost, and I don't think almost, but going around the federal acquisition regulations. And I think this comes back to Mark, this idea of if the FAR is so problematic, why not fix the FAR instead of continuing to figure out ways not to use the FAR? Now I understand going through the rulemaking process is, is very difficult. I understand all these things, but you're, you're addressing symptoms and not the underlying disease. And I think that's a big, big problem in the government contracting community. Within the federal government, IT community, but more broadly the acquisition community, it, it will be very interesting to see who ends up in the chair at the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, OFPP. Again, going back to people, I still were still several CIOs that still need to be placed, several chief acquisition officers that, that those positions are still vacant. And I'll just add this, there's a big push to not hire so many feds. What will the trickle-down effect happen in the contracting world? We saw in the 90s when uh, DOD got rid of a lot of contracting officers, and that really created big problems. If civilian agencies are not going to rehire in these positions, what's that going to do to the market as well? So uh, th those are kind of the top things on my mind. Okay. Robert? Um, and I'll be the optimist in the group and say that uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that the Congress will move forward with uh, appropriations as, as they uh, should. 
and that the delay, the continuing resolution delay won't take too long. And and that as we uh, move forward, we'll be tempted to shut down the government, but I hope that uh, good, good judgment prevails and we move through that with, without uh, incident. So near-term well, we optimism. Uh, Nick, I think these next six weeks, by mid-February, we'll know, you know, it's, and I seem to they're either going to pass a budget by mid-February or it's going to be out even more months. Because the closer we get to November and the elections, the harder it's going to be for Congress to do anything. I think the gridlock we're going to see by, you know, May is just going to be, you know, unprecedented. I think they don't have a budget passed by then. I, you know, we won't. I don't know. So, yeah. so I want to ask because uh, you guys are being more optimistic than me, maybe. Uh, shutdown or no shutdown on January 19th time frame? Nick? Uh, I think it'd be as, because the 19th is a Friday, right? Probably. <laughs> I think we might see one for the weekend, but I, I'd, I don't think. No long-term. A, no long-term shutdown. Bob? Uh, I'm hoping that there's none and not, not even for the weekend. Well, I, I think, think we all we hope that, right. but I was very pessimistic around this December deadline right around the Christmas time because I figured, just generally speaking, they, they have nothing to lose between Christmas and New Year's. So I was happy to see I was wrong. I, I'm, I'm, I don't know where to go on the, the January 19th one. When, when, the, I, when the, I ask the, companies about shutdown, are you prepared for it? And they say, yeah, we, we have studied it and studied and studied it because this – this uh, flare goes off, you know, yeah. periodically, and, the, and they're the, pretty well prepared. The cost for a shutdown is is enormous. My final thought for for uh, this two part show uh, is that uh, 2018 will be, uh, I believe, the most volatile election year, which means that the the collateral damage will include the government contracting universe and the uh, the 1102s throughout government, the CIO. So I, I think we're in. For one massive, uh, not pleasant uh, time, uh, will there be a shutdown? Not not in January, but I believe we'll have it in March. Uh, and and I, as we get closer to the uh, the election, I think we'll we'll see you know bigger divides than ever before. So, gentlemen, thank you very much for coming in. Uh, two weeks in a row. Yay. Uh, this is not my day job. If you need, uh, some, uh, some advice on your, uh, 2018 marketing, particularly in a volatile year, I've been doing this a while. This is my uh, 34th year in business as Amtower and company. So happy to chat with anybody. Drop me a line at mark at federal net, And thank you very much for listening to Amtower off center. You've been listening to Amtower Off-Center, sponsored by General Dynamics Information Technology. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. Amtower Off-Center, only on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.